0: Exact Nature's all natural CBD based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load and recovery, be it with addictive cravings, depression and anxiety, or improving sleep. Founded and run by a father-son team, both in recovery, this issue is personal for them. Learn more at exactnature.com. And as a listener of the Sobriety Diaries, use the code TSD20 to receive a 20% discount at purchase. Again, TSD20 at exactnature.com.
1: I get it. I know what it's like to feel like the only one in the room. and. I thought, oh, Black people are going to get this, right? Because we are often the only ones in the room. Yeah. But it was people from all races, from all over the world, all ages, all creeds, all, you know, sexual orientation, like everybody across the board understood what this felt like.
0: Sober Day friends, welcome to The Sobriety Diaries. My name is Nate. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic seven years from my last drink. The Sobriety Diaries is a video podcast where we share powerful stories of recovery told by those who lived them. Check us out at thesobrietydiaries.com for all things podcast related. And for all our video interviews, head over to youtube.com slash Kelly. Also, please share this podcast with just one person in your life who may still be struggling. You just never know what they may need to hear today. Recovery is possible. Oh, I am so excited for today. I'm a little nervous, I'm a little inspired. Today, we have podcast host, producer, writer, (laughs) contributor to the Huff Post and Tempest, now author of Stash, yes. coming out this week, March 7th. And I like to call her a friend of mine, yes. <laughs> Laura Cathcart-Robbins. How are you, my friend?
1: I am so good. And I'm so happy to be here and really happy to see my, <laughs> my book and your background. That yes. is so dope. Um, <laughs> thank you for having me on the show.
0: We we first uh, introduced to one another on your show, which I had a yes. blast doing. I was humbled to be in your presence. Uh, um,
1: such a good I, episode, by the way, of the only one in the room. I definitely still, listen to it. Yeah,
0: I still get DMs and and people that find their way to the sobriety diaries through the only one. So oh, grateful for that, great. and I think it's still out there making a difference. So super humbled by that as well. I guess since since we kind of started on the podcast i know the only one in the room isn't sobriety specific but i think it it definitely has a layer of of recovery surrounding some of the stories uh, i'm curious where the idea came from and how it's progressed to this amazing show that it is today
1: oh well thank you for asking that i love to talk about the podcast it is um so yeah it's called the only one in the room um you mentioned huffpo it actually started from a huffpo article that i wrote in 2018 about being the only Black person at a 600-person event. And I, I wrote the article. It immediately went viral. Um, within the hour, I had wow, just an influx of direct messages from people who were basically saying, I get it. I know what it's like to feel like the only one in the room. And I thought, oh, Black people are going to get this, right? Because we are often the only ones in the room. Yeah. But it was people from all races, from all over the world, all ages, all creeds, all, you know, sexual orientation, like everybody across the board understood what this felt like. So Scott Slaughter, who was my boyfriend, producer and um, (laughs) (laughs) co-host, but at that time he was just my boyfriend and we... We just kind of put our heads together and I said, would you want to do this podcast and tell these stories? And we just kind of felt our way through the beginning. We launched in April of 2019. Um, And you're right, we're not a recovery-specific podcast, but Scott and I have both been sober for a little over 14 years. We are ensconced in the recovery world. Um so you know the things that I I write about the most and that we talk about a lot on the podcast are race relationships and recovery the 3 Rs yes um <laughs> and and so you'll find a lot of episodes that have to deal with those three things
0: it is it's such a powerful concept the only one in the room and you know you mentioned different ethnic backgrounds and and sexual orientations i can relate to that uh, you know being a gay man and sort of scanning the room mm-hmm. sort of trying to find your your people or your safety i think yes. safety doesn't automatically come when you enter a room when you're a minority and i think that if you're looking around trying to find your safety that mm-hmm. makes so much sense no you know noticing that you are the only one in the room
1: yeah. I actually um, just did a TEDx talk that's called Confessions from the Only One in the Room. And mm-hmm. it is about just that thing, walking into a room and counting the people of the non-dominant culture. Yes, And I do that automatically. I've been doing it since I was seven years old. And I was told to by my parents, like, look for your people when you go into a room because that is your safety.
0: Oh, that reminds me I just saw you on TikTok and yeah. you yeah. told a story of your father sending you on a trip and I think yes. it relates perfectly to that. Will you retell that story?
1: My my parents split up when I was 4 so I was visiting my dad. I was I think I was 6 going on 7 then and I he lived in Florida and we lived in Cambridge, Mass so I was leaving him. Uh, he was saying goodbye to me and it was my second time flying by myself. The first time it'd been on my way down there. And This was 1972, so there were no cell phones. You know, there was no, um, you know, there were wall phones. There were landlines. There was no way for them to communicate with me once I got on those planes. And so my dad bent down and he looked at me and he's like, look, Laura, listen, if you're ever in trouble, always look for a sister and meaning a black woman, Um, because the airports were full of white people. The airplanes were full of white people they had grown up in jim crow a segregation in chicago and had very difficult experiences very challenging experiences as black people my dad was a doctor is a doctor and my mom is an artist they were the same then and um they they just wanted me to be safe and they were trying to navigate this as young people they were in their 20s wow. you know when when i was a kid and um so that's what I did. He put me on that plane and told me to look for a sister if I ever got in trouble. And I always have ever since then.
0: It's kind of fascinating how that turned into uh, this habit that remained with you throughout your life and now has yeah. developed this not only career path, but aspects of your personality. I think it's it's beautiful.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah.
0: Well, on these Sobriety Diaries, we talk a lot about our own personal journeys um, through addiction and recovery. I don't like to focus tons on the negative and the ugly and the bad, because I think it's more important to focus on the good and the recovery side of things. So I definitely want to hit on your personal journey. And uh, I know we share some 12-step work in common, but I guess if we could start perhaps with what led you to to seek a path of of recovery and if you want to relate it to to the path of the book or however you want to tell your story i would love to sort of start there.
1: Yeah. Well, um thank you for asking that as well. That actually does relate directly to stash. Um i wrote stash in a really sensorial way so that basically i drop you into my body mm. at the beginning of a 10 month period. That's what it covers is 10 months of my life in the year 2008. Um, at the beginning of this time, I'm filing for divorce. I'm deep into a pill and alcohol addiction. I'm PTA president. I've just been asked to join the board at my children's very, very posh independent school. I am, you know, the black representative and most of the white spaces I inhabit. So I have this, this idea that I need to be excellent in all of it because I'm representing all black people at school and it, in my tennis lessons and at Barney's where we're all shopping. It's like <laughs> right. it's a very privileged life. Um, and I am often the only black person that any of them kind of, the the people that I'm surrounded with that they socialize with. So I have all that going on, and I was in a ho- a high profile marriage and that was ending um, quite painfully. And my solace at the time was that I could check out at night, with with drugs and alcohol that I could get through these days which were just like we were talking about before the interview started very packed days where I had to very performative days where I showed up for people
0: mm.
1: for my kids for the school for my for my um you know soon to be ex-husband and after showing up for all these people I felt like that was the way I could treat myself um for those of you who are just listening I'm putting that in air quotes and <laughs> um my treat was just you know, I just wanted oblivion. I just wanted to be knocked out and not feel anything for eight hours. And mm-hmm. um, it was very seductive to me that idea. I I ended up chasing it. You know the way that the way that people in addiction, all kinds of addiction, chase anything whether right. it's food or sex or shopping or gambling. Um, there's a fix. You know that that we chase. Like I can, you know, if I can get that fixed, then I'll feel okay. And, uh, you know, it was at the expense of being a good mom. It was at the expense of my commitments to all these different communities. It was at the expense of my marriage. And and what happened was it was beginning to be at the expense of my life. I I understood that as my tolerance built, I was taking increasing larger dose, doses and needed them. Um. So I made a decision. The book starts in, um, I think it starts in March of 2008 so in July of 2008 I make a decision to go to treatment uh and that treatment center is is the Meadows in in Wickenburg Arizona so I I leave my children which is another painful thing for me to do in the middle of well kind of at the tail end of a divorce now which Ugh. is not the you know my divorce attorney was really pissed. (laughs) There's a really great scene about that in the book where she's just like, you just got to wait. (laughs) This isn't going to look good. And I'm like, I can't wait. I'm sorry. I got to go. And I I went and it was was excruciating. Uh, It was, you know, some people get to treatment and they're like, ah, I'm safe. You know, I don't have to worry about. Yeah. Um, Actually, I think most people feel like that. I was the opposite everything was wrong about me. I felt sentenced. I felt like I'd been incarcerated. I, I, I just, I don't like anything communal ever. (laughs) (laughs) And everything was communal except for like, you know, we got to take individual showers, but we slept in the same room. We did everything as a group. And, um, so I just, I just didn't like it. I endured the 30 days that we were there. The bright spot of which was, of course, I met Scott, um, who I talked about at the top, being my boyfriend, producer, and co-host. Uh, I met him the hour after I checked in there. Wow. And, yeah, and that was, we were, you know, I, I I, don't know why I feel like I need to say this, but I think I do for people in the recovery community or for people who are just getting sober we were not a rehab hookup that was that was like not our story we were friends there and we ended up getting together after we both left and returned to our our respective cities um but while we were there he was he really he saved my life he made it so that i could stay there i wouldn't have been there i wouldn't wow. have stayed if it weren't for him
0: that's divine intervention or or whatever you want to call it, but right place, right time. I mean, we, we hear about these sort of spiritual events or things that perhaps we wouldn't have recognized as such, or perhaps would have floated past us if, if we were still an active addiction. But I think the awareness comes with being sober, but that is one of those, those moments, man, you can't deny it.
1: No, no, it was, um, Scotty calls them spiritual breadcrumbs, oh. like you're on the right path. Yes, You're on exactly. the right path. Oh. You know, when it looks bleakest, then there's something like that, right? That allows you to keep moving through. Because doing the right thing is really hard. It
0: is. It's yeah. not, it's most times not the easiest.
1: No, <laughs> no, it's not. You know, you want to do the thing that's most comfortable. Right. Or I do, anyway. I want to do the thing that's most comfortable. I rarely want to take do anything that's going to take me out of my comfort zone. Right. Yeah. So
0: you said something about almost being performative or mm-hmm. and I relate to that so much. I look back and it was almost this character version of myself or this I was an actor portraying this this version of myself on a stage and behind a closed door or when there wasn't an audience i think is you know when the the true me came out but i relate when you said that performative aspect of it it just kind of mm. stuck out at me i relate to that so much
1: yeah and i i think that most people i mean i won't say most people but i do think that a lot of people can relate to that at some point in their lives they put on a mask Or a performance, or they pretended to, or they've gone along with in order to fit in, be liked, um, not make waves, uh, get, get a promotion, you know, like all that get the job, like all these things or get the guy or get the girl or get the yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but just, just to set aside some aspect of themselves in order to accomplish something and. You know, I think our society, you know, supports that. I mean, I don't know. I don't think our society supports that. Obviously, it does.
0: (laughs) They support that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hello, plastic surgery. Yes, amen. (laughs) 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 Right.
0: Just the pressure.
1: So um, yeah, I I'm I'm not surprised you resonate with that. I think that that, like I said, I think a lot of people do.
0: Within this sort of high profile relationship and coming out of it did you think that there was extra pressure or i mean i'm sure it just made it that much more difficult right
1: i mean yeah i don't have another divorce to compare it to <laughs> but but yeah i i i felt for me and let me also preface this by saying this is a very personal book i give you very personal details about my life and and what went on and yet i'm a very private person Like I'm not the kind of person, like my closest friends now don't know a lot of intimate details about my relationship with Scott. I just think that some things are better kept
0: private. You agree? Yeah. I completely agree. And almost to the point where I cringe when people are too open about it.
1: Yes, yes, me too, me too. And yet there is this very personal book, but I- I didn't think that I could help anyone if I didn't write what really happened. Yeah. And that was my goal with this book was to write, because I didn't have a book like this when I was getting sober. Mm. There was no book written by a person of color from a place of privilege about addiction. There still isn't. So I didn't have a manual to help me through. And I was like, if I get through this, I'm going (laughs) to write about this so that the next person will have a manual. Right. And um, so that's what I did. But- It was because I'm private going through this high profile divorce felt like I was going through it without skin. Mm. Like I had no protection from the world and everybody was curious. Everybody was talking about it. And, and I was, you know, still like on drugs. So (laughs) I didn't know how much was paranoia. (laughs) There was, how much was it? there was that too. There was that too, but but there was certainly some legitimacy to what I was perceiving. Right, and 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 people are still curious about it. I still get people asking me, um, "What happened? You know what? Yeah, what really happened?" And um, I I don't want to tell them. <laughs> yeah,
0: and you don't have to. <laughs>
1: but yeah, it was there was definitely an extra layer on it because of that.
0: Well, I got to say, Laura, from a 12 step perspective for looking at your first year of recovery, as they say, <laughs> we have a divorce, we have a new love, we have getting sober within a 10 month period. Yeah. Well, ha- sh- shit, how did she do it? You know, yeah, right. but I think it speaks to at, at some point when you've got a lot to fix, sometimes it it's like, rip the bandaid off. Is that how you felt? Sort of like, let, let me get back to my baseline. I've got to kind of get my shit together.
1: It was, it was two things. One, I always refer to that first year for me is like someone pulled a fire alarm in my head Mm. and it didn't stop until the year was over. Like if you can imagine just living with that constant noise, you can't really stay present. Like all you want to do is shut it off. Right. That's the only thing that really matters and that's what my that's what that year was like for me i just wanted to shut off that noise i couldn't do it with drugs and alcohol anymore um you know i went to 12 step meetings they they turned the volume down a little bit while i was there and then it would go full blown again when i left the meeting and i couldn't sleep i was i was really just going through the motions my focus was not on scott who i had met there and i said like we were friends um and and I really liked being with him. You know, I liked being next to him. I liked our conversations, but my focus was my kids. It's like, what do I have to do this minute so that I can be a better mom? What do I have to do right this second so that I can be a more present mom? And forget silencing the alarm. I can't mm. do that. I just got to power through it and be a better mom to my kids right now. So that's what I did that first year. If you saw me, I did, uh, I meditated in the morning. I did drop off. I had my PA meeting, PTA meeting, you know, committee, because I was still the PTA president. (laughs) Um, I went to a 12-step meeting. I went to fellowship with my fellow 12-steppers. I picked up my kids. We did, you know, soccer or football practice, then homework, then dinner. And then I would talk to Scott at night on the phone. And then I would go to sleep or go to bed, even if I didn't sleep. That's what my day looked like. So it looked like I was doing everything. But what it felt like was just those two things, quiet the alarm and take care of my kids.
0: One of the biggest hurdles in starting a podcast can be the overwhelming thought of all of the technology. Let me tell you, don't let it stop you. Especially in the beautiful online recovery space, we could really save lives. So if you have a message that you want to share and a story that you want to tell, the Podcast Host Academy can help you get there. Inside the Podcast Host Academy, you'll find courses on everything from equipment, software and editing, to presentation skills and vocal warmups. Click the link in today's show notes for an additional 15% off your subscription to the Podcast Host Academy and Alitu.com. That is Alitu, A-L-I-T-U dot com. You know, I, I said the book just got here last night, but I did dig in a little bit. And you talk about sort of starting to break down those walls. How can we start to break down those walls or start to be seen?
1: Oh, it's so hard, Nate. It's just like to, it's terrifying, right? The walls are, like I said, they're much more comfortable. Yeah. Like I can, I can hide behind them all day. And and you're right, stash refers not only to the stashes of drugs and alcohol that I had in my rain boots and in my, you know, behind the, the vanilla extract in my kitchen yeah, and yes, like yes. all these different places, but it does refer to the fact that I stashed pieces of myself away my entire life, not just while I was in addiction. And that's one of the things I came to understand after I got sober was that, you know, my my road to recovery started long before I picked up the first bottle. Whatever that first bottle was, my road to recovery began then and, or my my road to addiction began then. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then my road to recovery, you know, that for me happened when I checked myself into treatment. Like that was that was really when that began for me but you know the 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 bottle as they say was but a symptom of what was mm-hmm. going on with me and what was going on was that i was afraid to be myself um and and i wasn't aware of that i didn't i wasn't aware that what i was experiencing was fear i thought it was you know um distrust of other people i thought it was judgment i don't like the way they do this i don't want to be part of that But underneath all of that was fear, and I didn't have a chance to examine it as I was going through it. But each time I made a decision based on fear, I stashed away part of myself. Mm. So my goal in recovery has been to really think about decisions before I make them and, and suss out my motives. And if it is based on fear, then it doesn't mean that I can't make it, but I need to be aware that it's based on fear. And for me... I need to talk to somebody about it before I take action on it. And that has slowed that role a lot and allowed me to retain some pieces of myself.
0: Sometimes for me, even voicing something out loud, yes certainly to another human being. But even if I'm in the shower by myself and I just say something out loud, give yeah. it that voice, that space. I'm like, you're a f- crazy do you hear what you're saying but certainly with another human being just voicing things sometimes can either <laughs> empower that thought or decision uh, or certify it as crazy for me well
1: and and for me because i've been voicing things out loud to one particular human over the last 13 years I already know what her response is going to be. <laughs> like yeah. as soon as I think yeah. about saying it to her, yes, I'm like, damn, she's just going to say this, this, and this. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not even going to bring it up to her. I'm just going to do this, this, and this, and like yeah. be done with it. You know, exactly. But I and need. Usually that they're right, <laughs> and usually they're right. Yes, exactly. But perspective, I think, is the thing that I was lacking when mm. I was in it, and so that process. Gives me that perspective that I need in order to make those changes.
0: I'm curious about the 12-step com- community in Los Angeles.
1: So this is how I lured Scott to LA from Utah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> was he was in Camus, Utah, where there were, I think maybe there was one meeting a week, but in, in Salt tough. Lake, yeah, there were more meetings. But it's it was a drive for him and for a number of reasons he wasn't able to drive <laughs> so, <laughs> um so it was you know he was trying to get sober in a town that didn't really embrace recovery um at that time and um for anyone who's in Camas I'm I'm sure it's much different now and I'm 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 hoping it's much different for for all of you in recovery there but uh, so I was like you know you should come to LA there are lots of sober livings here I'm sure you could find like a sober roommate and we have meetings everywhere around the clock and they're all different kinds of meetings. Like I go to a people of color meeting. I go to a writers in recovery meeting. No way. Yeah, it's great too. It's on Zoom. If you ever want the link, let wow. me know. I yeah. do. I, okay. <laughs> I
0: totally do. <laughs> the, um, I think I, the variety is just something I crave. Oh, you know, isn't it great? Yes. Yeah,
1: I love that there is variety, and I think there's more of it since um, the pandemic because For sure, a lot of these meetings went to Zoom, and so you know there are atheist meetings, and they're just all kinds of meetings. So whatever yes. you are, whatever you're feeling that day. Um, in Los Angeles, you can find it. So I I lured him here to check it out. Um, he did find a sober living that he that he liked. He (laughs) then found a sober roommate that he liked. We didn't move in together for six years because we really wanted to take care of ourselves and our respective families first. Um, and we dated during that time. And we were boy meets girl on campus, (laughs) and we wanted to be sure that we were. At an emotional, spiritual, and mental level, that we were uh, a good fit for each other at those levels and off campus, off campus. <laughs> but basically, we wanted to make sure that we knew each other well enough that we that we knew that we really wanted to be to, with this person before we jumped into anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're still learning know. ourselves, right? Yeah, those yes. first few years, I didn't know who I was, what I liked, what my hobbies were, yeah. the food that I liked. I I, I really didn't. It, it took years for me to learn about myself and certainly before I could love myself or respect yeah. myself. So that makes sense. I love that you guys took that time.
1: Well, and, and and what you just said is completely true for me as a newly sober person, but it was also true for me as a newly divorced person. So, what did I like on my own?, well, I went to the store. I bought milk like the first <laughs> time at the store, and i I, I hate milk. <laughs> yeah. And my kids don't drink milk. But I like, what do I like? I, yeah, you know, I didn't know what I liked. I didn't I had gone in these like I was in these little ruts for so many years doing, you know, things that that we did, and I didn't know what I did. And so I really didn't need that time to find out what I did, what I liked, who I was. Then there's a sobriety thing on top of that, which uncovered so much stuff, but it was a double whammy for me, Mm. being, getting divorced and getting sober at the same time. I don't recommend it.
0: (laughs) Do you remember, Laura, when, when those things started coming back or, or when you started to have these moments of gratitude in early recovery, maybe the first thing or I'm sure it was related to your kids, but that you first felt gratitude for,
1: sure. you know i I thought about first of all, I was really grateful that I wasn't detoxing anymore, and that that sounds trite, but it's true. My detox was terrible. Uh, I experienced withdrawal for for months after that, actually, mm. not in the same way that I did when I was in treatment, but it was it was a really gnarly, just difficult. Detox. So I was very grateful that I was no longer detoxing. I was really grateful that my my now ex-husband um and I were able to stay friends and put our kids first and continue to co-parent them. I mean, honestly, That's Nate, yeah. that school where I was such a figurehead where everybody was kind of talking about what was going on. A lot of people thought we decided not to get divorced because we still showed up at their concerts together and the games together and the parent-teacher conferences together. And they thought, oh, they're they're together. And um he he did a really marvelous thing where he came over every morning and we all had breakfast together. And mm. um, and you know, when I ended up moving, I, I sold the house where where we had lived together and bought another house and I bought it just a few doors down from his. So that we could be closer and the kids wouldn't have far to go um, when this, they. It's yeah. like
0: my parents story. And I can tell is you it? from my sister and I will both tell you how important that was to us. And I'm sure oh. that your kids. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, that it. I mean, it truly changed. Uh, you know, divorce we hear can can be so ugly and and so nasty and competitive, but my parents did the same literally down the street and it it couldn't have been a a better experience for us.
1: Thank you for saying that. My, My kids aren't very demonstrative about that kind of thing, but the gratitude comes from how secure they are. They are confident, happy, grown adults now, but they were confident, happy kids growing up and they remain that way and i i really do um attribute that to the fact that that he and i my ex-husband and i were able to get out of our own ways and decide that this was our priority
0: for sure
1: yeah absolutely yeah. thank you thank you for saying yeah. that though that that gives me a lot of that makes my heart warm
0: for sure yeah uh, we have differing perspectives on, on that sure. so it was yeah. it was interesting to hear it from from your perspective as well
1: and I just I'll just add that it wouldn't have been possible had I not gotten sober. Oh yeah. It would have driven a, a wedge, it would have widened the wedge between us instead of, you know, we were able to get closer together and have that common goal. Um, my priority when I was drinking and using was was that. That was my priority, was getting well. I put that in our quotes too. Yeah, for those <laughs> <guys>. <laughs> Getting well, right. Um, so that I could go on, show up for my life, but it was getting well first, always, always, always.
0: So Laura, the book is out now. The yeah. podcast is ongoing. What, yes. what is, what is next for Laura?
1: Um, I'm, I'm starting on an, on another book. And right, um, right, off, right off the bat. <laughs> right off the bat. I've been writing it for a little bit, but I haven't devoted a lot of time to it. My my intention after this book tour that I'm on right now is to sit down and um for six months or so and just really write. And the the great thing about our podcast, the only one in the room, is that <laughs> Available Is wherever I, you get
0: your podcast. Yes, wherever you get your podcast.
1: Um, Scott and I, our studios in our home, so so nice, um, and we can also, of course, record remotely like we did with you. But yeah. when we have Los Angeles-based guests, we they can come here, and I so I can do my work from the same place that I do my writing. And um, the podcast we're in our are going into our 16th season. I think we have close to 600 episodes, 4 million downloads and counting. Uh, we are um one percent ranked numbers one percent globally, um for podcasts, and I just it's it's shocking to me, <laughs> you know, to because you know how it is you started yeah. if you're in a vacuum right
0: a bubble you're talking to yourself or to talking to in a room and, yeah. and you're like who knows who who will relate to this
1: right and then some people are listening and then they're sharing it and yeah. then. You know, advertisers are like, we want to reach the people that are listening to you. And it's just this crazy. And it doesn't always work just like that for anyone who's starting a podcast. Don't <laughs> right. be frustrated. Um, I, I was told seven years is when you really start seeing the fruits of your labor at seven years of doing a podcast. So that slowed my role a lot because I was <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> I should be in the money by year yes, two. come on. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, 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 it really I don't know is
0: the, the marathon, right? Like yes. you've got to be in it for the long haul. You, yes. you have to have sort of that plan on how the show is going to evolve.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it has been, um, it's been a delight. I've learned so much. I've gotten to interview so many interesting people like yourself and learn all these different stories. And, and because I'm a storyteller, I've only ever told my story. So the podcast allows me to tell other people's stories or be that conduit for these stories to be told, which Uh,
0: that's my favorite thing about it is helping people that wouldn't normally have a voice or even after they come on the show and. And and help them to navigate a way to tell their story and help to bring out the best way to tell their story. Oh, it's my favorite thing to do. Yeah, I, I love it. I agree. Laura, I love to leave our listeners with some tangible things or some takeaways, perhaps if they're in early recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, what advice can we leave or that could, you could leave our listeners with?
1: I try not to give advice. But I will offer my experience with a couple of things. Great. Advice usually gets me into trouble. Good point. Because I love to give advice. <laughs> 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 I want to tell you exactly what you should do and how you should do it. Um, so my experience was that I didn't let my feelings dictate dictate my actions in early recovery. I did not ever feel like doing any of the things that I did to show up for my recovery, mm-hmm. and I did them anyway. Some people call it discipline. I don't know what it was, but I just, it didn't matter how I felt. I knew what the right thing was to do. I i went to a number of meetings every day in early recovery. I i was given instruction by people whose recovery that I admired. I followed those instructions, whether they seemed crazy or not. I, and I, I've never experienced anybody asking anyone to do anything that would like harm them or anyone else. Ditto. So it's not crazy <laughs> like that. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I just didn't let my feelings dictate my action. I, um, I prioritized my recovery above everything, including my children, which was the reverse all the time of what I wanted to do. You know, if my kid wanted something, but there was a meeting that I was supposed to be at, I wanted to forget the meeting and help my kid with whatever they wanted, but I found it to be better for myself if I went to that meeting first and then helped my kid, Unless, of course, it was something like they were sick or whatever, like that kind of thing. Obviously, they got priority. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for me and the way that my mind worked, then I would take any excuse not to engage in in my recovery. Any anything could be an excuse. So I couldn't allow that. I couldn't have I call them my three horsemen, rationalization, minimization and justification. <laughs> so <if laughs> that's a trio. Those, Yeah. Once those three (laughs) things, any one of them entered the picture, I had to be like, nope, this is what we're doing today. It's on the calendar. We're going here, we're doing this, we're going here, we're doing this, we're speaking here. Then we do pick up, then we do, you know, whatever it is. And um, the last thing was, and this is one of the things that I think really kind of got me into the predicament that I was in when I got sober, um, which was that That being so far away from my authentic self that I didn't know who I was, was to take some time to get to know myself every day, Mm. um, which felt absolutely wrong as well. Like to sit quietly with myself was dumb (laughs) (laughs) and it was wasting time. I should have been doing this, this or this. It just didn't make sense to me, but I was told to do it. So I did it anyway. Um, I took that time to sit quietly with myself, things occurred to me, things appeared to me, things became clear to me during that time. Um, I also exercise, I'd always kind Mm. of exercise, but I made more of a point to um, make sure that my commitment didn't get derailed by anything else. So I have, I call them my non-negotiables. I meditate, I exercise, I hit a meeting, I, you know, I perform some act of self care besides the exercise and the and the meditation, like I'm getting a massage yes, later on today, jealous. I told you. <laughs> um, and that's an extreme version of self care. Right. not, yeah, <laughs> not the that.
0: daily. <laughs> um, but
1: then I get to engage in the things that I want to do. And and eventually what happened was those are also the things I want to do. Those oh, things so that important. I made myself yes. do. Yeah. Yeah. It so does that's,
0: switch, doesn't it?
1: It does. It yeah. does. Yeah. And, and not eating a ton of sugar, even though I really wanted that the, it, for me, it was disruptive to eat as much sugar as I wanted. As soon as Mm. I put down drugs and alcohol, I wanted more sugar and I ate it for a while. Um, I'm not even thinking about gaining weight or anything like that. It just wasn't good for my head because it was the same high and low.
0: It it sure is. Yeah, Yeah. You learn to cling to it in, in much the same way.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so that would just became a substitute and not one that was good for me. So those are, those are the, I love some it. of the things. Yeah. So,
0: so good. Stash, My Life in Hiding is out yeah. now. Laura, yeah. uh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on on the day my book drops. That's so great.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I wouldn't have it any other way.
1: I appreciate it.
0: Is your TED Talk available now?
1: it is yeah um if you just look up tedx laura cathcart robbins no one knows how to spell that hopefully you'll have it in your show notes
0: <laughs> yes i will <laughs> it's
1: c-a-t-h-c-a-r-t and then robbins r-o-b-b-i-n-s um, i'll find yeah. it
0: and link it in the show notes i appreciate that of course that. with your yeah. book and the yeah. podcast as well
1: yes thank you
0: thank you laura enjoy your massage my friend i will <laughs> <laughs> i'll text you soon okay okay <laughs> <laughs> bye laura that so, so good. So yeah. good.
1: Thank you. Yeah,
0: thank you.
1: Thank you. Wait, uh, where are you, Nate?
0: In Columbus, Ohio.
1: Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. I, I was thinking somewhere middle of the country, but then I saw the um, the cow mouth.
0: <laughs> no, just here in the Midwest.
1: There you go. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're making it look good. Well, thank you. Yes. Thank you. You're flashing it up a little. So. Yeah. Um, hey,
0: I want to... Uh, I have a trip to LA on my 2023 mm. board, so. When is it? A, that's just like my vision board for Oh, 2023. your vision board, okay. Yeah.
1: So, well, hopefully we're here. If we're yeah. here, we'd love to take you out to dinner or something.
0: I will definitely let you know.
1: Yeah, not for drinks.
0: Nope, no drinks, just dinner. <laughs>
1: I, I mean, I, I mean, mocktails. We yeah,
0: mocktail. Listen, if if we're going, if it's a good place, they're going to have a mocktail menu,
1: right? That's true. That's true. More and more places do.
0: It's very true. Thank you so much for listening today, friends. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Make sure you check today's show notes for all the information discussed in the episode and how to connect with our guest. And as always, check us out at thesobrietydiaries.com, youtube.com slash Nate Kelly, and on Instagram at the Sobriety Diaries pod. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. Friends, it truly helps other people to find the show. And in turn, we can help more people. Until next Wednesday, try your best not to drink and be good to yourselves. Bye, everyone.